Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today I'm absolutely stoked to be talking to Craig Kirkwood from New Zealand. Craig is currently the coach of Hayden Wild, a real chance for a medal in the Tokyo Olympics, and Sam Tanner, a young 20-year-old Kiwi that has already run 338 for 1500 and sub 4 for a mile. He's going to the University of Washington in the US. Craig was a 213 marathoner himself and a two-time Kona Ironman finisher. He runs a full-time coaching business called CK Coaching. Welcome to the show, Craig. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, I understand that uh, Sam and uh, Hayden are, you know, about to pop in in a couple of hours for a, another tra- a training session. Yeah, that's right. They're coming over and they're off to do a bit of a Bartlett session this afternoon, so something a little bit more relaxed for them. So, yeah, they're just meeting here and then getting off to do that. So, yeah. Nice. It's a beautiful day here, so they should enjoy it. How's, how's their training going? I saw Hayden did that one-hour record attempt uh, on the on the track, and Sam Sam helped pace. Um, yeah, how's their training been going during this uh, weird year we've had? Yeah, it's actually been going very good for both of them, I think, um, from two ends of the spectrum. So Hayden, obviously, being a triathlete, uh, predominantly, um, it was a bit of a blow when they cancelled the Olympics. We thought he was probably going to be a medal contender, for this year if it had gone ahead um, and it was a bit of a blow but being cancelled so we found other things for him to do uh, during the winter period and um, we were locked down for I think eight weeks or nine weeks or something so we found some other stuff for him to do running wise and just did a few virtual things and um, and then he's come out the other side of it in really good condition um, he's going better than he ever has in all three disciplines so um, it's gone really good for him for, for Sam it was a little bit different in that he came home from the US um, when lockdown kind of started or just before lockdown started in New Zealand and based himself here. And um, he it was probably really good for him because he's young and he needed another year anyway um, to try and qualify for Tokyo. So that year um, is, is going to be quite beneficial for him. He's actually a long way ahead of where he was this time last year as well. So, um, yeah, I think the, him helping Hayden in that one-hour challenge um, – just kind of demonstrated the strength that he's got now. Um, you know, he quite comfortably run a low 29-minute 10K, which is pretty good for, you know, a 20-year-old 1,500-meter runner. So Yeah. Um, yeah, so he's pretty, he's, you know, he's in good nick. They're both in good shape. So we're looking forward to this track season to see what's going to happen. Nice, nice. And so will Sam be staying um, for the sh- short term in New Zealand? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um yeah, we've we've discussed it a few times, and my take is that I, I really just want whatever's best for him and um, whatever whatever's going to work to get him to Tokyo. So whether that be staying in New Zealand and you know doing our domestic season, uh, there's a few you know good runners here, and there's a chance that he'll be able to run fast. 
um, and then pop over to Australia maybe um, after the New Zealand Nationals and do some racing over there. Um, I don't I don't know whether that's viable or not. Um, obviously, we've got a two-week quarantine when you return, so that's a consideration. Um, and the other option is that he goes back to the um, Washington um, in January and takes up that uh, indoor and outdoor season over there and hope that the races go ahead. So, I mean, it's a bit of a bit crystal ball gazing for, for both aspects and who knows what the best answer is at this stage. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, how much training are they doing together? Uh, yeah, with Hayden being yeah more the triathlete. Um, yeah, how, how many sessions would they do together? They probably do um, maybe two sessions a week together on the... On, either on the track or on the on the road. Um, yeah, it just depends on the what's coming up and what the structure of their week looks like. Obviously, Hayden's got two other disciplines to factor in, and um, he's got some triathlon races that are coming up, so um, his, his schedule's changed a wee bit. So, but I always try and coordinate their programs so that they can do workouts together. Um, way better for them to do that rather than doing them separate. So, um, if it takes a bit of manipulation, you know, getting the the programs to coordinate then you know that's what we do so um, but they we also kind of do long runs together and stuff so um that works well nice and so craig like getting back on to you um i saw that you got into the sport quite young as a 14 year old um what got you started into running and endurance sport like um what was the inspiration and um can you remember back to then with your own career, um, yeah, why you got into running and and why you enjoyed it and and uh, yeah, ended up becoming such a good runner yourself. Um, yeah, I I used to play soccer um, and in the winter and then race yachts in the summer um, and then I was always quite good at the school cross country and things like that and I always did it right so. Um, I wanted to do cross country and my mum wouldn't let me play soccer and do cross country. So she said, you'd pick one or the other. So, and I, and I'd probably already dawned on me that I wasn't a very good team player in that respect. Um, <laughs> so I quit the football and went to, went to Harriers and started doing some cross country stuff. And then, um, yeah, and then I wanted to do athletics. And so the same story kind of happened with, uh, with the yachting it was like, well, one or the other. Um, so yeah, I quit the sailing and, and went to do some athletics and yeah never looked back really i've always had had a passion for it and i quickly became a student of the sport i um i grew up in a small town in the south island and um didn't have any coaching prospects around so i just read as much as i could um and most of that was arthur lydia's texts at the time um so i'd just read that and absorb what he had to say and um probably became an early disciple of lydia uh, i think i've morphed away from that considerably these days but certainly the, the elements of his of his philosophies are there what, what um elements do you still stay true to and what do you think you've morphed away from like what what how do you feel like uh training that you prescribe these days to your athletes is a little bit different uh, well, i think the similarities um are probably pretty constant with most coaches i, I would assume is that it's you know, it takes a great aerobic engine to uh, produce good results, uh, you know, continual results. Um, I think one of the differences now is that racing is almost year-round and very hard to um, be on a true peak to one event um, in that uh, I, I tend to stay clear of that. There are risks around 
um, peaking and tapering and um, and that. So I try and stay a little bit clear of, of that style um, of coaching. So most of my athletes with a couple of weeks, you know, specific preparation could bust out a pretty good race at any time of the year. Um, so that's one, you know, that's one way it's probably a little bit different. Yeah, nice. And then, um, as a youngster, uh, you at, as eighteen at eighteen years old, you went to the University of Oklahoma. Um, uh, how were you as a junior? Were you competing pretty well in the in New Zealand um, as a junior? And and then, how was that experience um, in America in the U.S. college system? Yeah, so I um, I was doing a ride at school. I and in the junior ranks, I probably kind of was in the top four or five. Maybe you know, I got a few medals from junior junior days. I never won a junior title. Uh, we had some pretty good juniors around at that time. Um, Jonathan Wyatt was one of them. A guy, Phil Starr, who uh, you may or may not have heard of, but he was pretty exceptional. He was sort of a man child, um, and uh, we used to get dominated. Yeah, but it was yeah. So I did it right in the junior ranks. Ran some reasonable times. Um, certainly nowhere near what. You know, Sam has achieved in the junior ranks. I was mile, he was a miles better athlete than I ever was. Um, yeah, and then I, I went to the University of Oklahoma. It was a really interesting um, journey, that, because I had no idea um, what I was stepping into. You know, it was well before the days of the internet. There's no ability to do any research. Um, I only knew of one person who was over there. Uh, there were a few Kiwis at the time. I didn't know them, but I knew one of them. And so I'd... Um, I hadn't talked to her about it, but um, I had written letters because that's what you did in those days. <laughs> so wrote a couple, of, wrote a couple of letters and got a you know a bit of a feel as much as you can from a couple of letters about um, you know what the environment was like and uh, made the decision to go. Um, and yeah, what left left school and uh, and then probably six weeks later was at university in the middle of winter in Oklahoma and it was a bit of a bit of a culture shock. It was a big difference between um you know summer in new zealand to winter in oklahoma um and yeah but it was it was an awesome experience over there we certainly made lots of lots of mistakes as, as an athlete and um but learned so much about myself and about running and um you know it's probably maybe the, the person i am today and uh, assisting me in my coaching so yeah uh did it influence uh uh or did it help uh, when sam um tanner was uh leaning towards the U.S. collegiate system and, and choosing the college that he chose? Did it help uh, during that um, experience? Yeah, it did, I think, because um, I'd, I'd spent a lot of time... I spent six years over there, and I spent a lot of time, you know, talking to other guys and other programs, um, and, you know, we were pretty good mates, and when we ever meet up, at, you know, at events, we'd go for a jog and talk, and so kind of got a feel for how other programs operated as well as ours. Um and ours was by no means perfect, but neither was any of the others. So um, it was really good to kind of understand that. And then when Sam was being approached, um, pretty much it seemed like by every university in the US seemed to approach him at, at one point or another. Um, we spent some time, um, we spent a lot of time actually um, narrowing down um, all the offers at all the universities that had contacted him down to kind of a handful and then made some really deliberate um, decisions around which ones he would go and visit, which ones he would, you know, talk further with and um, make some decisions around them. And there was a, there was a lot around him as a as a person um, and what would work well for him, uh, what would work well for his, his 
his discipline and his strengths and weaknesses, so which coaching environment would be best for him. Um, and I think he's, you know, made a really good decision with Andy Powell. He's a, you know, Andy's a really good guy. We we chat often as well. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a link there uh, between Andy and myself now. So, you know, and it actually turned out that I had met Andy in another lifetime when I was competing um, in 2001. So we had history before I even, yeah, even realised it. So that was quite an interesting uh, um, outcome from that. In 2001, what was the event? Uh, I was... Um, it was when I was living. I was living in London, and I was managing a training camp in Palo Alto, um, at Stanford University, um, for the Kenyan and top American athletes who we looked after. And Andy was at, on the program at um, Stanford at that time. So, yeah, so we'd run into each other at the at the track and stuff. But I I didn't remember. I was a few years older and um, hadn't recalled that, but he'd remembered. So yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. It's a pretty yeah. small world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah running world world's pretty small. In um, your college experience, you said you felt like you made a few mistakes um, and you learnt from them. What were some of the as you look back and um, yeah, reminisce, what were some of those key mistakes that you sort of have learnt from with your college experience? Yeah, I think our coaching environment, and I don't know, my, Steve, who was the coach there, is, is friends with me on Facebook, so you may see this this, this pop up and yeah. maybe listen to it, I don't know, but sorry, Steve, <laughs> if you do. But um, it, the coaching situation wasn't great, like it wasn't yep. perfect, and we did a lot of stuff on our own accord, and, you know, sometimes we'd be given sessions and, with not much guidance around what the what we were trying to achieve out of it, um, and so as a young fella who's running fast and wanting to run faster, all we wanted to do is rip, rip the legs off every session. And um, oh, I remember walking away from some of those and just being so beat up that I could barely could barely walk, you know. And and recovery the next day was non-existent, and um, you know that kind of trap is very easy to fall into unless you have someone who's can you know actually explain, you know. Um, what you're trying to achieve out of that session, um, what energy systems you're trying to, you know, you're trying to tap into, and um, what the outcome is going to look like at the end. Um, and even today, I had an athlete who I've started coaching recently, and he was doing a set of one k's, and you know, he said, "Oh, should I should I jog or standing recovery for my one k's?" And I said, "Well, if you know, if you if you have to stand and bend over and you can't walk, then you, you're probably going too fast. Like it's, it's too much. So you need to back off. Like it's you've got to you've got to be able to." get through the session, get through it comfortably and recover. Yep. Um, yeah. It wasn't designed to be one of those sessions where you passed out on your back after every rep. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've seen you, um, I think it was in another podcast, men- mention um, two, two types of 1K rep sessions and um, I think you might have been talking in relation to Hayden Hayden's training, Hayden Wilde's training, how sometimes you give him um, 1K reps and he has to try to do them in 240 um, and it might be standing recovery. Um, and then there's, you know, another 1K rep session where he just does it in three minutes of 305. Um, and and then the, the recovery from both sessions is so different. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, yeah, when you're running 240 pace, it takes a little bit more to recover, recover from. You generate different levels of lactate and, um, you know, you tapping into a different system so um yeah very different outcomes from those but you know what i did at university and what i learned was that you know you 
you can't run them all at 240 all the time and uh, <laughs> think you're going to get better. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I learned the hard way, and but now I can pass that on, so I feel kind of blessed that I did that and um, that I have the ability now to, to help others get it right or not make the same mistakes that I made. In, um, I think it was 1999, you moved to London and uh, you got to know um, Alan Story and Kim McDonald. Um, and Alan Story became your personal coach. Uh, Kim McDonald, you ended up um, working under him as um, an athlete service manager and, and assistant coach. And, and with all the Kenyan athletes that he, he um, was managing at the time, um, that must have been an amazing experience. How did that come about? Yeah, interesting question. Um, it really happened by accident. I was um, I'd moved to London, um, really with no plan, no job, no money, no nothing. I was sleeping on a mate's floor, um, and I I don't know how I got the original made the original contact, but I I contacted Alan Story, and at the time he was the elite field coordinator for London Marathon, and I was trying to get a job with the London Marathon, so I was kind of tapping into him for that, and. He was going, you know, he, he invited me along to come to the, some of the sessions and I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool, but have had a job. And um, he's like, oh, I said, oh, I don't really have anything, but a friend of mine, Kim, um, you know, who told me what he did and he's like, he's got a, a role going now. I can um, put you in touch with him. So I was like, oh, okay. So we met with Kim and, um, yeah, just fell into it really. Um, and it was, it was an awesome job. Like I, uh, I learned so much from that role as well. Um, the assistant coach title was probably it's probably uh, a title that I've given myself um, in retrospect. Um, without without having that official title, it was certainly now I look back at what I was doing. I was definitely assistant coach to Kim. Um, he spent probably you know 300 of the 365 days a year travelling, um, and he was coaching most of the athletes uh, when they were in London or in Africa. But when they were in London. Um, I, he'd give me the job of taking them to the track and you know, delivering the session for them and then providing feedback to him about how that session went. And he would use that information on how to enter the athletes into um, you know, the, the Diamond League races or Golden League, as they were called then. Um, and, yeah, so definitely an assistant coach role. You know, he would um, he relied quite heavily on the information I gave him. So, and the time that I spent scanning, you know, at the track, you know, Delivering these sessions was invaluable for my coach development, for sure. Because um, to give listeners like reference, um, some of these athletes that you were helping out with and and involved as that assistant coach sort of role, um, they were the likes. Of, were they the likes of Daniel Komen, Noah Yenny, um, Bob Kennedy, um, and a stream of other sub thirteen minute five k runners from Africa? Yeah. 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 Um, so I lived in Daniel Coman's house, the 720 Daniel Coman. So yeah. I stayed for quite a long time in his house in, in London. Um, yeah. And yeah, so Noah Ying, who was the 2,500 meter champion. Um, and yeah, he's, he delivered we, me one of my most memorable moments in sport. Um, after he won that Olympic gold, he, he rang me from, I was in London, um, and he rang me from the um, anti-doping room, that, you know, and said, oh, and the way he phrased it was, kind of what said it all to me, but he's like, oh, we've won, we've won, we've done it. And so that inclusion that, you know, I'd been part of that was pretty cool, um, even though it was probably, you know, a minimal part, but um, I was there for 
pretty much all of his training sessions um, that whole summer. So, um, yeah, so that was pretty cool. Um, that, but I've never forgotten that moment. It was, it was pretty special. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think in 2000, this is a really, really crazy stat, but in 2000, we had um, 10 guys who broke 13 minutes for 5,000 metres in the training sport. Um, and Daniel Coman was the last on that list <laughs> that year, um, which was pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it was, it was crazy times. Yeah. From those times, uh, what do you think made those athletes so special? Like, what, like, what do you still remember and constantly refer to these days as a coach um, when you're coaching your athletes? What, what have you really taken from those days? Um, uh, and you feel was you know some of the things that they were really getting right. Uh, I spent some time in Africa as well, so I spent quite a bit of time in Kenya um, after that period. But uh, yeah, it was just a, and I spent a lot of time in their homes as well. And they just it was a pretty wholesome kind of experience in their training camps and in their home life. Um, and then when they came to um, they came to the training camps. It was dedication to the to the training. So they were they were in camp. They were dedicated. You know, there wasn't much else happening during the day. So we'd run, you know, two or three times a day, go to the track, and then there was eating and sleeping. And that was pretty much all they did in the whole block of training. And the same when they arrived in London, um, they would all be living in one house together. They would always be at the house. They're very rarely anywhere else unless they're at the supermarket. Um, and, yeah, it was just a really, a really dedicated lifestyle, I think, was the, was the key driver. Um and plus, when you've got, um, you know, I don't know, there were probably 25 guys in London at the time, all training together for different events, and you know, they're just, and they're all world-class athletes, high quality, um, and it's a great, you know, training environment. Were there some training sessions or segments that um, you, you like, you still like? It was did they just train really hard? Like, did that open your eyes in terms of how hard some people can train, or like, um, I mean, what was the experience from maybe just sort of the training that they were doing? Was there some memorable sessions that you just, um, yeah, or, or splits that you can recall? Yeah, so I remember a couple of sessions jump out at me. And one was um, a session that Paul Coetch, who uh, tragically passed away last year in a car accident, but he he, he did a session of 25, 400 um, and he was hitting them all on 60 seconds with 60 seconds recovery. And he had two pacemakers, and they were both sub-13 minute guys. And, and he was just drilling it. And it was, was jaw-dropping to watch. Um, <laughs> but he was a beautiful he was a beautiful mover. Um, and he pulled up from that session extremely well from memory. And, and then about a week later, so this is before the, um, the 10,000 meters in Brussels, I think it was. And he... Yeah, about a, about a week to five days to a week later, he um, damaged his knee, and um, I don't know if he finished the 10K, but, yeah, he was in phenomenal form um, based on that session. Yeah, you know, get through that. Yeah, you're doing well, and still be able to kind of function the next day. Yeah, uh, that's incredible. Yeah, and there was another session uh, Daniel um, Noah Ying did before he left for Sydney for the Olympics, and after he finished the session, I was, I was adamant that he was, he was going to win um, and beat El Garouge. He had the he had the leg speed. We just didn't know if he was strong enough to hang on to El Garouge. Um, and he did 
it was five laps, four laps, three laps, two laps, one lap, and it was all at sub four minute uh, pace. And he ran the last 400 and something like 52 seconds, and <laughs> it was all pretty comfortable. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, you, you watch that session, you're like, oh man, this guy's in form, he's ready to go. Um, and he flew out to London, uh, to Sydney, uh, you know, a week later or something, yeah, and, and delivered it on the day there. Around about this time, your own running really took off in the marathon. Um, uh, would you put that down to the environment that you were in, and uh, and um, I suppose what influence did Alan Story have on your career? Yeah, he was a really good influence actually, because he he's. He's the one who probably taught me that I, I was making lots of mistakes <laughs> with my training. Um, and, yeah, so when I worked for Kim, I was actually running okay. I ran some pretty good times. Um, but I was always, during the summer, I was always working so much that I was exhausted. I was, during summer, we were we were busy, you know. I was probably doing 60 hours a week um, at work and then trying to, trying to train and race on the track and, um, you know, take people to meets. And, you know, it was just crazy busy so probably didn't get the best out of myself at that time but after I left um, was when I really started to improve and I think probably working for Kim and being in that environment really helped with my um, belief that it was actually possible and if you've ever spent any time around the Kenyans and you know if your training is going well they'll tell you it's going well and they'll encourage you to um, you know to believe that you're actually capable of more than you think you are which I think is a hugely valuable tool um, and it's something that I talk to the boys here about, you know, Sam and Hayden. Sam doesn't need that much um, talk about belief, but neither <laughs> Hayden for that matter. But it's, um, you know, it's a really valuable tool to have in, in your armory is to actually believe in what you are trying to achieve and know that you're capable of it. Um, and a lot of people have that self-doubt. Um, and I think once you master that and overcome it um, and, you know, just believe that it's possible, then, you know, you're, you're, you're a long way there. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened to me, I think, is when, you know, I finished working stupid hours all the time and actually managed to focus on my own training, um, you know, the performances came. So, yeah. On your website, CK Coaching, um, there's a quote, Craig, you're in a hole, stop digging. And uh, this was Alan's story, um, wasn't it? And uh, what were you doing? Like, were you just um, not recovering and just training hard all the time? Yeah, I was training for my first marathon. So, I in 2000, I'd done the World Cross in um, in Portugal, and it hadn't gone very well. I'd been a bit sick in the, in the, in the build-up. And um, then I went to London Marathon and was watching London Marathon from the sidelines. And around the same time, I'd heard that the 2001 World Cross was going to be back in Dublin. And I had no desire to go back and run in the mud. So um, I, you know, I, I got inspired watching London. I was like, right, I'm doing this next year. So 2001, I'd, I was in, in Melbourne actually training um, and managing Kim's training camp and training for the marathon myself. And uh, I can't remember what exactly had happened, but I'd, I'd obviously been training too hard and not recovering well enough. And I just cooked myself in a couple of sessions and... And I remember ringing Alan, you know, in a bit of distress that I, you know, things were falling apart, and and yeah, he he quoted back with that quote, yeah, Kirkwood, yeah, you're in a hole, um, you know, stop digging, and it's something that I've never forgotten, and I use it all the time now because it's so it's such a valuable 
reminder to people that they just need to back off sometimes and let the body recover and um, you know you come good and you roll out the other side as long as you're not too deep in the hole. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, and it worked pretty well. I I ran twenty seven thirty seven on the track um, and then went to London and debuted in two sixteen. So um, yeah, it it was a good message and it worked well. It did the job. And then um, from from London, uh, you ended up running Chicago as well. Was that in two thousand and one? And that was your marathon PB uh, two thirteen seventeen for thirteenth place um can you remember chicago and um and how you felt and and the lead up to that yeah so i had a had a really good lead up i'd been in i've been to kenya to train for that um and then went off to chicago and that was yeah it was, we had really good conditions that year in chicago and there was there was a group of guys who were rolling a little bit faster than i wanted to go um and they were running five minute miles um and so I worked in miles back then, <laughs> and um, and I wanted to go a, bit, a little bit slower than that, so I kind of peeled to the back of the group, and there were a few other guys who did the same, and um, one of them was a Norwegian guy, and I can't remember his name at the moment, uh, I want to say Carl Rasmussen, I think that's right, and we ended up running to about oh, about 35k together, and then he just, he and he wouldn't let me lead, he kept coming past me to take the lead, so I just let him do it, uh, and I just sat on him. And then at about 34, 35k, he started to falter, and um, I was like, right, I'm not having this, I'm off. <laughs> and um, yeah, just managed to managed to get in for 13th place, and yeah, it was an awesome experience. It was one of those days where it all just clicked and everything came together. Yeah. Um, you qualified for the 2002 Com Games, and um, but I understand you you got a bit of an injury, and um, what was the injury um, around this time? Yeah, so I'd been I'd been training really well. I was probably in the form of my life coming into that race, and um, I got back to London. I was running um, around Bushy, uh, Richmond Park, and um, a car pulled out of a driveway. And uh, as I kind of sidestepped to avoid being run over, um, I just pulled my groin and my back, and I wasn't really sure exactly what had happened at the time, and um, kind of limped limped home. Got some treatment, um, and the New Zealand Olympic Committee wanted us to prove fitness um, to make sure that we were fit enough to go to the championship. So um, Jonathan Wyatt and myself had to go to a 10K um, and prove that we were fit enough. I can't remember what the standard was, but I think it was about 29.20 or 29.25. And we went there and did that comfortably, but it was probably the, the worst thing that I could have done uh, for the injury. And it just completely flared up and um, I was hobbled after that. Um, I think I made it through about 23Ks of the of the marathon in Manchester that year. Um, and, you know, it was probably one of the worst experiences of my life. It was, um, yeah, it, was, it still hurts to this day to talk about because yes. it was so raw and it was, um, you know, it's one of those things you you build up and, you know, it's like the pinnacle of your career and then it just turns to custard and it's, um, yeah. But, it's you know, again, it's a valuable lesson that there's only probably three people in each event who... Everything goes right for um, everyone else. You know, walks away disappointed. So um, to have that experience was valuable as well, even though it was gut wrenching. Yeah. After after that um, experience, um, you kept doing marathons, and did you move and a bit of mountain running, and then you soon turned to triathlon. Um, 
did you move back to New Zealand at around about that time? Yeah, so I moved back um, back to New Zealand straight after the Commonwealth Games in 2002. Um, and yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty badly injured um, and came back here to try and get it sorted. Um, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, whether I was going to live back here. Kim had wanted me to stay on um, and I'd kind of said no. Um, and he subsequently passed away probably a month or so after the Commonwealth Games, which was pretty tragic. Um, but yeah, so I'd moved back to New Zealand, tried to get some treatment. It probably took about 18 months to come right um, before I kind of got it completely sorted and then maybe another year to really get over the injury. So it was a long, um, it was a long battle to get back to any kind of fitness. Um, I tried to qualify for Athens and I tried to qualify for Beijing. Um, and in 2008, I'd said to my brother-in-law who was doing some Ironman stuff, I said, oh, if I don't qualify for Beijing, I'll do Ironman New Zealand with you next year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, subsequently we both lined up and um, I kind of fell into to triathlon and Ironman racing, yeah, for a few years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you went pretty well by the looks of it. Um, yeah, running like, oh, do it, completing a 909, um, yeah, Ironman, yeah. like that's pretty, pretty amazing. 254 off the bike. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, my, that was my first and fastest one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was, uh, yeah, that was a bit of an experience. I had no, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just was going as hard as I could for the day, and um, I had, uh, I had a guy helping me, and I remember him telling me uh, in the lead up, he's like, oh, when you're when you're racing on the bike and just ask yourself every 20 minutes or so, can I still run fast, you know, with my legs spinning like this? And that was, that was kind of the measure that I had. I had no, like now I, I coach and ride with a power meter and, you know, all sorts of metrics. And, you know, but back then it was just like, can I still run fast? It was like a, just a question I had to ask myself. Um, yeah, so just ride hard enough to be able to run fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. I, I enjoyed the triathlon stuff. I was, for a while I thought about, uh, maybe racing professional, um, but I was never a good enough swimmer to really be truly competitive. Um, and then I just got too old. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I did. I, I went to Kona my first year, um, which was a cool experience. It smacked me around. Um, I decided I was going to go back at some point. So 2013, I went back. Um, it beat, beat me again. Um, and then 2015, I went back for the third time and was defeated once more. So um, yeah, I have no desire to go back and wrestle that monster. It's, uh, it's got the better of me. <laughs> um, yeah, in 2013, you, you started um, your coaching your business, um, CK Coaching. Um, what prompted that move and uh, uh, what have you enjoyed most um, from being a coach uh, yeah, over, over the years? Um, the, yeah, the move to coaching was interesting. I, obviously, I've been involved for years and years, um, and I've done some informal coaching with some people when I was helping people at the time, and then uh, it was right after that Kona experience in 2013, and I ended up being made redundant for my job, actually, um, and part of that redundancy, they kind of screwed up the process, and there was, um, you know, there was money owed to me, so I... Um, that assisted me to help set up my business and um, yeah it just kind of decided at that point that I was gonna try and make a go of it and see what see what you know if I could be a success at coaching and um, you know I really I really enjoy helping people reach their goals and um, 
getting the best out of himself and um, it just kind of seemed really natural um, to fall into it. Um, and it's been, there's been ups and downs, and uh, but for the most part, it's been an awesome experience. I, one of my catchphrases these days is that it's better than working for a living. So um, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just a cool lifestyle. You know, like I, I went out riding with my brother-in-law this morning, you know, we were out riding till 10.30 this morning and yeah, that was great. Like, how cool was that for a job? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it looks amazing where you, you is it Timaru? We. No, oh. I live in uh, Tauranga in the North Island. Oh, yeah. yeah. I grew up in Timaru though, yeah. But the 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 views, um, yeah, I've seen it. I think you might have been running, um, did you do a mile every hour um, for tw- 24 hours, um, like a yeah. month or two ago? Was that with your son or...? Yeah, yeah. So that was during our lockdown here. We had um, we weren't allowed to go more than a couple of k's from home. So um, a friend of mine in Auckland had done it, and part of the challenge was to do a, a mile every hour for twenty four uh, for twenty six hours, but to actually do other stuff and be productive like while you're doing it. And I, I had no interest in being productive. I just wanted to see if I could do the twenty six hours. So he was mowing lawns and building fences and or doing all sorts of other stuff, reading books in between. You know. Um, <laughs> And so I was like, I just want to go and do it as, as a challenge. And then my son, who was uh, 14, he said, oh, you know, I think I can do it. And I was like, oh, it's, it's a lot of running, but it's only a mile. Like, <laughs> yeah. And we'll just go. So, um, so I was like, sure. So we, yeah, he joined me. And to his credit, he, he finished it. Um, and he, there was a little bit of moaning going on in the depths of night. But, <laughs> um, yeah, he did, he did awesome. Eh? It was a pretty cool experience to do, do something like that with your son and, um, yeah, yeah, nothing coming up. There's no school to worry about or anything. So, um, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's good but, to. You know, we, we live in a beautiful part of the country here. It's um, yeah, great scenery, um, awesome harbour, and um, you know, great off-road running, and um, yeah, it's a pretty cool place to live. This is a hard question, and um, I've asked a few coaches this question. Um, because it's, it's hard to summarize your coaching philosophy um, uh, because a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's always changing, it's always evolving. But at the moment, how would you summarize your coaching philosophy? I'm going to give you the same answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a slightly different answer because I think my philosophy um, varies depending on which athlete I'm talking to. Um, yeah. So if, I, if I'm dealing with someone like Hayden, uh, our focus is high performance, and uh, and our objectives are to win, you know, on the global stage. Um, so we have to we have to approach what he does a little bit differently to someone who I'm coaching who just wants to finish a half marathon. So um, for them, it's more about um, you know completing that that accomplishment, maybe doing it slightly faster than they did last time. But there's no high performance element. So there's no there's no external pressures or other things to worry about. So that is slightly different, I think. Um, in that respect yeah um but it, but it depends <laughs> yeah 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 that's uh, <laughs> that's the answer i get a lot <laughs> yeah i think it's a really hard thing to answer actually it's a very difficult question um yeah i don't think as coaches or maybe some do but as coaches i don't think we sit here thinking what's my philosophy you know like it's not, it's not yeah. something you ever worry about you just kind of get on with the day-to-day um, yeah you have you have underlying principles that you follow and you believe in and um, but are they philosophies? I don't know. Yeah, it's probably a bit deep for me. I'm interested in like what what are like if you reflected back to your time with Kim McDonald, um, what were probably like the 
the biggest uh, learnings you had from that experience um, with all those athletes and, and those high performance athletes? Like what, yeah, what, was there anything that you still sort of um, really reflect on and, and it really opened your eyes? Oh, that's a big question too. Um, I think it's just the, I think it's just the quality of athletes, and when you get a group, a quality group of athletes who are very motivated and driven, um, that they work really well together. Um, there are inherent dangers with that because if you get the wrong people together, it can turn to custard, uh, particularly if the personalities don't gel or um, they have a tendency to want to race each other all the time. Um, that's quite destructive to the training environment. So. Um, that's one thing that Sam and Hayden do extremely well. Is that maybe it's because they don't race each other very often, um, and they come from different ends of the sport. Um, that they they train really really well together. Um, yeah, there's never there's never any um, dick measuring going on. <laughs> for lack of a better term, it's it's always it's always um, very very balanced and very measured in their approach, yeah. so, which is which is awesome. Yeah. What what if you were to um look at like Hayden um, and Sam as people, what what do you think um, each of their, um, some of their best personality traits are? Um, yeah, and, and assets are. Um, well, if I start with Sam, he's, he's extremely enthusiastic <laughs> um, and really, really positive um, and never, he never sees anything as insurmountable. So, um, you know, the, he's run 338 for 1500, but saying, oh, you have to run 330, you know, sub 335 to qualify for Tokyo, um, that just rolls off his tongue like it's a completely normal thing to be able to do. Like, and that, it's not really, it's not really a challenge. I just got to go out and do it. Um, and so that, it's that self-belief and the confidence that he's, he's actually going to be able to achieve it and it's not really that big a deal and I'm gonna, just going to go and do it. Um, so that's probably his, his biggest attribute. Plus he's... Like physically, he's extremely gifted, um, and, you know, athletic guy. Um, Hayden is—he's um, got a huge aerobic engine. Um, he's an absolute monster um, in the lab, and I'm, I'm not going to give any numbers, so, yeah. but um, but he's a—he's an absolute monster, and but he also carries that same same belief, and he's—he's he's not afraid of anyone. Like if you watch him race, he's not afraid to throw down um, with anyone. He's like reputations don't mean anything to either of them, so. Um, they will they will have a crack um, no matter no matter who they're lining up against. So so that and I don't think you can coach that. That's something that is innate um, in someone. Um, and when you get a you know an athlete who's extremely gifted physically um, and has that same mindset, um, then you know they're going to go really well if you look after them and nurture that uh, talent along. Yeah. Yeah. How did you um, come in contact with both of them? Like how did um the relationship between you as their coach start? Oh, well, so Hayden, he, um, I first met him when we went to a half marathon and he, um, he stole my prize money. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so we, I did this half marathon, um, in the Hawke's Bay and it was a thousand bucks for first place. And he, uh, I went down there knowing there was no one really else in the race. And there was this young guy, Hayden Wild, just young multi-sport guy. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go win myself a thousand bucks for the weekend. That'd be easy. And get on the line. I knew he was there and, and I just could not get rid of him. And then he beat me. And I was just, <laughs> it was just unbelievable. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> Who is this guy? And then, um, yeah, and then 
probably, I don't know, six months or eight months later, he came to me um, with this desire to race ITU and go to the Olympics for the triathlon and would I coach him? So, um, yeah, we sat down and tried to map a, map a plan and see if we could make it work. And uh, it's in, you know, looking pretty good at the moment, so hopefully it worked out for Tokyo. Um, and then Sam, he was, uh, he was a young fella here who lived in Tauranga, and I'd seen him um, racing in a few races because he didn't actually do a lot of racing or training, but he, he did really well at the year nine, which is obviously first year of high school. He won the national cross-country champs, and he'd done no training. He was just like this really gifted little kid who just like smashed everyone. And, um, and I'd watched him race that day, and I was like, oh, this kid's, this, this is talent right there. And, but it was probably three years um, before, uh, you know, we started working together. Um, one of my, one of my uh, philosophies and approaches is that I'll, I'll never ask an athlete if I can coach them. Um, so that 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 request will never come out of my mouth. Um, it has to be it has to be directed from them and it has to be athlete led. Um, so yeah, so I was, I was pretty actually happy the day that he said to me, "Oh, would you coach me?" I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're an awesome talent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, I was talking to someone the other day, and, you know, probably Sam in particular, his athleticism um, and his speed, um, he's probably a once in a lifetime for a coach, like as an athlete. Yeah. It's just how gifted he is. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was pretty cool. Pretty cool way to um, get together with both of them and um, and for them to be kind of at the same time and be able to train together and they're, they're really good mates, the pair of them, so that's awesome. Yeah, that's incredible. It sounds like there's a lot of um, good talent coming out of New Zealand. Um, I was interviewing Chris Pallone a few months back and he was um, telling me about Ollie Chignall as well. Um, yeah. And, yeah, yeah it's he's, exciting. He's a, Chiggy's a talented young man too. He's, yeah, he's... Um, yeah, he's a really gifted athlete. There are a lot of really talented athletes in New Zealand. Probably not enough uh, quality coaches in some of the provinces to look after them and, and bring them through. Um, so that's something that needs addressing. It's probably historical as well. But, um, yeah, there's, there's always lots of talent rolling through. But, you know, talent's only one part of it. Um, you've got to have the whole package and then they've got to want to do it. Um, and, you know, it's not always easy to find enough people Especially when you've got a small population like New Zealand, it's uh, you know lots of other things they can get involved in too. So lots of different sports and activities. So. Um, is that part of the reason why you'd never ask someone to uh, for you to coach them? Because um, you want that drive to be coming from them, um, and and then also how important is a coach? Um, it is probably the reason um, is that I. I I always want it to be the athlete's decision and all my athletes who I coach are always on a week-to-week basis so they always understand and know that if they don't like me or not like what we're doing or not liking the results we get they're free to go and they're not no one's tied into any kind of contracts or any kind of long-term obligation so um yeah it has to be that relationship in my opinion has to be athlete-led um otherwise it just it'll never work um what was the other part of the question? Uh, how important is a coach? Oh, how important is a coach? Oh, I think it uh, it depends. <laughs> um, I think I think it depends on the stage of the athlete's career and whether they whether they're experienced, um, what they need from the coach. So someone who's been around the sport a long time might just want some guidance or someone to bounce ideas off rather than 
you know, what should I do today, every day kind of information. Um, but as a as a young as young athletes, I think it's important that they have someone who gives them guidance in their in their structure um, and making sure they're not doing too much and not thrashing themselves too often. Um, so I think it's important for the younger athletes or the, and the newer athletes, um, less so for the older ones. They probably just need some someone to bounce ideas off and to give them some guidance or maybe some accountability. Yep. And like with a lot of the athletes that you're involved with. Um, what are the, some of the most common mistakes that you do see runners making? Uh, well, hopefully none of my runners do it, <laughs> but, just, <laughs> but just doing, doing too much, uh, and trying to run too hard all the time. Um, and also one of the things that I find really amusing, and this is probably from, uh, athletes who are a bit newer to the sport is that if they miss a day, they try and make that day up. Um, and you know, I always try and reinforce the fact that you just just leave that day in the past and just move on and and just carry on. You missed it for a reason, um, so just just skip it and you know focus on what's next, not what what you missed. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's 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 hard though, don't you think? Um, with getting that balance right. Um, look, I I've, I wrote this down um, from another podcast. Um, I think it was the Science of Triathlon podcast. Um, uh, that you said thoroughbreds just need a lot of work. Um, uh, the um, like as long as they're doing big chunks, um, like it, like it. Don't worry about. I think you're also making sure that people don't focus on the small details, um, the nitty gritty. It doesn't matter. Yep. Um, yeah. Like, like, how does someone strike that balance between making sure they're training enough and not overtraining? Yeah, that's a real fine balance, um, and and different people answer that in different ways. Sports scientists will have uh, all sorts of metrics and numbers to be able to tell them when that's happening. Um, I I tend to think of myself as a bit more of an artist in that respect, in that I, I'd rather have a conversation or watch someone run um, or listen to what they're saying to me about how they're feeling um, and use that. Uh, rather than some numbers that have come through, you know, a bit of software. Um, I think that, I think that approach. Well, for me, it works. It works really well. Um, don't always get it right. You know, sometimes you, you, you get that wrong. But um, most, for the most part, it, it works out okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think people do get a bit tied up with the small stuff a bit too often, um, and uh, yeah, worry about worry about things that aren't aren't running and, and how much percentage gain they're going to get out of it. Um, yeah. yeah. What's um, some of the proudest moments you've had uh, when you reflect back on your coaching career? Well, oh, um, crikey. Um, there's, oh, yeah. I don't know. There's so many. I mean, I talked about the one with uh, Noah. That was pretty special. Um yeah, oh, look, oh, I could go on for hours about this yeah. answer. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I take a lot of enjoyment out of people completing, you know, their first ultra or running a PB in their half, even if it's two hours and 10 minutes, you know, that to me, that's really cool as well because they're, they're achieving something that they, they've wanted to achieve for ages or they've, you know, never dreamt they could achieve. Um, and so that, that's always really special. Um, 
I, I tend to live a lot more in the high performance world. So if we if we talk in that space, um, it's probably something like Hayden, you know, getting third in Tokyo. Um, I was in Edmonton when they New Zealand won the mixed team row, uh, relay over there. That was pretty special. Um, when you know Sam um, ran his three thirty eight, that was pretty awesome. Um, broke sub broke four minutes for the first time. Yeah, those kind of things. Uh, those are pretty cool. Um, you know, for a young for a young guy to be breaking you know, New Zealand records um, that have been you know held by some of the great names in New Zealand sport. Um, yeah, that's pretty pretty cool. And Craig, you're like also a doping control officer. Um, and yeah, I didn't know this, um, so a lot of people wouldn't know, but why did you um, get into this role? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, I work for Drug Free Sport New Zealand um, as a DCO um, and an educator. So I educate, um, you know, teams and groups of athletes and support staff and all sorts of stuff on the on anti-doping and the and the rules and um, what they need to look out for and what you know what supplements what the dangers around supplements and you know the medication risks and those kind of things so um the reason i got into it uh i think it was my time that i spent racing um in europe and you know just going up against guys who i really i really didn't believe should have been in front of me and and there's you know, I said to someone the other day that athletics has, has now become the new cycling and that it's, it's really quite filthy. Um, and athletics is my, is my passion as well as triathlon, but I want to keep sport as a whole, particularly in New Zealand, really clean. And I think we do really well as a country. We have a really good culture around our sport and that it's, it's not, there's not a huge amount of doping in New Zealand. And I like to think that I'm part of that and help keep it that way. Um, and when teams come and visit, we, you know, keep the same standard, um, you know, for those guys, for those people who come and compete in our country. So, yeah. Well, it's pretty cool because, um, uh, like everyone, not that they didn't, can have confidence um, in how you practice. Um, so it only looks good on you and what you stand for um, in the sport. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I, because I coach at a high performance level in athletics and triathlon, I'm restricted. I can't test in those sports, which is because of conflicts of interest. So there's no, um, there's no way I can, you know, I don't even know when things are happening. Hayden will text me and say, oh, I've just got tested this morning, you know, and <laughs> so I'm okay. Oh, I had no idea that was happening, but right up. <laughs> there's, there's no reason they would tell me. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it adds to what I do or or what, but it, it makes me feel good that I'm I'm part of um, you know anti-doping and clean sport in New Zealand, um, and that you know we can pass on that message. You know I've been doing it since 2003, so well before I was coaching. Um, Ten years before I started my formal coaching business, I was working in anti-doping. So it's been a long, it's been a long uh, history in the in the organisation, and um, yeah, something I'm really passionate about. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Craig, um, I've really enjoyed the chat. It's I'm wary that it's been about an hour. Um, was there anything else you, you um, wanted to finish off on, um, uh, like a parting message or any advice to any of the runners that, say, listen to this podcast? 
Well, um, shit, I don't know. Um, I guess advice, just enjoy the running that you're doing and um, don't get too hung up on, um, you know, on on the sessions. If things don't go well in a session, just don't worry about it. Um, It happens, you know. Um, People have good sessions and bad sessions all the time for various reasons. Um, I guess if you're having multiple bad sessions in a row, you might need to look a bit look a bit deeper at what you're trying to do. But um, but yeah, just just enjoy enjoy it and um, be proud that you can actually um, you know do your sport at whatever level you're at. Um, there'll, there'll come a time when you're not able to do it at that level anymore. Um, people ask me all the time, you know, am I still racing? And because I go out and train quite a lot still, well, train I run, <laughs> yeah. um, but not really. I'm not trying to. You know, race or anything. I just get out there because I still love it, and you know, it's what I do. And if, if I can um, stay fit enough to pace, you know, um, some of the young ones or the women I coach, um, then you know, that's awesome. Um, and I love to be able to do that kind of stuff for as long as I can. And with uh, say Tokyo next year, do you have any insight to whether it'll go ahead or what it will potentially look like, and or what you're hopeful that it'll look like for say Hayden or yeah. Um. I have a feeling it'll go ahead, um, but I don't think it'll be Olympics as we know it. I think it'll be probably athletes and support staff only um, and local local crowds. I don't think they'll want visitors flooding into the country as much as they would want the income um, as a country. I don't think they'll be in a position to, to host that many people who can't quarantine or they can't guarantee that they're not um, carrying COVID into their country. So... Um, I think, yeah, I think it'll be athletes only. Uh, hopefully it goes ahead and hopefully all sports go ahead. There might be some culling of some sports, um, potentially. I, look, I'm just speculating. I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that's where it's going to head. Yeah. Yep. All right, Craig. Yeah, thank, thanks so much. Um, what was that? Fingers crossed it goes ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks so much for your time, Um I know a lot of listeners will really cherish um, some of your stories um, and your experiences and and learn a lot from it. So, um, yeah, thanks for being so giving with your time and agreeing to jump on. Um, Yeah, thank you. No worries. Thanks for having me. And if anyone wants to uh, get in contact for anything, if they just want to ask a question or um, seek out some coaching, just uh, feel free to look me up on the socials and um, give me a bell. Yep. And that was, um, what's the web address? Um, ckcoaching.co.nz I think it is <laughs> I really don't know um, yeah if you just search my name you'll find me yeah yep. Um, yeah I found it easy enough yeah pretty easy to find yeah don't cool. try and hide myself <laughs> <laughs> um, I also found that uh, that um, uh, I think it's the on your Instagram that gold suit it looked like a Kathy Freeman suit that you're wearing what was, it, what was that all yeah. about <laughs> yeah well that's the um that's the prize for winning the New Zealand Bear Mile title. So, <laughs> what did you run? I'm the proud, I'm the proud seven-time champion of the New Zealand Bear Mile. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I lost, I lost it the last two years, so I've handed the suit over. It's not, I don't own it anymore. But um, yeah, it's a pretty proud moment to win that. <laughs> <laughs> what's What's your best Bear Mile? Uh, it's not very fast, to be honest. Like <laughs> six six forty two or something. So uh, not not that fast, but. Um, it's good fun. We do it once a year just for a bit of a laugh. We self-titled as the New Zealand champs, so no, no one could dispute it. Nice.